Welcome back to Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast exploring social, economic, political, and geopolitical concerns. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm a Hoover Distinguished Policy Fellow. I'll be your moderator today. And let's meet the featured attractions and stars of our show, Hoover colleagues we jokingly refer to as the Goodfellows. That would be the economist John Cochran, geostrategist H.R. McMaster. They are both Hoover Institution Senior Fellows. Normally, we're joined by Neil Ferguson, but Neil is the week off for good behavior, I guess. He's actually uh, working away on a biography, so uh, good luck with that, Neil. We hope to have you back soon. John, I have bad news for you, though. Despite Neil's absence, you're still outflanked by historians. Joining us today is Major General uh, Barry Price. That's retired Army Major General Barry Price. General Price is president and CEO of the Community Anti-Drugs Coalition of America. 25 years ago, General Price earned a doctorate from Texas A&M University's Department of History, in doing so becoming the first African-American in that school's history to receive a PhD in history. The good general joins us today to discuss America's opioid crisis in Black History Month, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s legacy, the roles of Blacks in the military, and CRT's effect on schools and the armed services. General Price, we're honored to have you with us today. It's great to be with you all today. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm a little shocked, Bill, that you didn't title HR with the eternal optimist that I saw you do in, in previous shows. I was trying to avoid baiting you because you take issue with that characterization. So yeah, yeah if you if you don't like the characterization, it's a good time to spill the tea on HR. Okay, good, good. I, I'll, I'll, I'll go with it. Okay, very good. We'll get to opioids in a minute. Uh, but first, let's talk about uh, breaking news, which is uh, what is going on vis-a-vis Ukraine. Uh, the president just uh, gave a speech in the White House announcing sanctions. Uh, as we speak, EU foreign ministers are reviewing a set of sanctions. Uh, according to the New York Times, uh, 27 individuals and entities, apparently not including Vladimir Putin, uh, in Berlin, uh, the German chancellor said he'll halt authorization of the Nord Stream 2 natural gas pipeline, at least for the time being. Uh, in Brussels, the NATO secretary general says he believes Putin is still planning for a quote-unquote full-scale attack. And back in Moscow, Russia's upper house of parliament gave Vladimir Putin permission to use military force outside the country. HR, I read all of this. And this sounds like Barbara Tuckman of the Guns of August. Well, it is. It's a very dangerous period. And, and Barry, I'd love to hear what you think about this. And John, I think what you've seen is just really we're in the middle of a crisis that began in you know 2000 and 2014 with the the annexation of Crimea and and the invasion of Ukraine and I mean there have already been 14,000 deaths associated you know, with this ongoing offensive uh, against Ukrainians. I think what was disturbing uh, John, uh, uh, for John and, and Barry and Bill, I don't know what you thought about it, but this kind of weird uh, cabinet meeting he had. Right. And he tried to Putin and try to get everybody on the record. You know, I'm supporting what you're doing. And then he gave that rambling, like long discourse, airing all of his grievances. And, you know, this is a guy who's he's 70 years old. You know, he he wants his legacy to be that he restored Russia to national greatness. Right. And and this is, you know, I'm, I'm afraid that this is just like a, like a late 1930s moment. And we're in for something, I think, even even more dangerous in the future. Barry, you, you, Barry, you were on the, in the fold of Gap when I was down there in, in uh, the Second Cav Regiment. We were we served in the in the two cavalry regiments that were that were in West Germany uh, at the time. But what, what's your assessment of it? Well, as a, well it's all right. I I agree with with everything that you're saying. I really think that it's it's a uh, it's really a condition of of Putin trying to maintain relevance as a as a superpower in the world. I don't believe that he is. I mean, I think that this is a lot of bark, no bite. Uh, I believe he's, uh, uh, it, it'll be interesting what our what our role might be as the United States and what our response might be. You know, I often wonder, and people have often asked me, why didn't uh, uh, Putin do this when, when Trump was in power, where it looked like he may have had, had support or at least a sympathetic ear? In the White House, and so the 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 my larger question is is why now um, is this occurring? Mm-hmm. Well, I would offer maybe I don't think this is 1914 uh, <laughs> because uh, Germany and France in 1914 were two very coherent, cohesive countries. Right. Um, so I was very interested. The Wall Street Journal had a long series today that I, I read this morning. Um, which I found very interesting on all the internal meddling going on in Ukraine uh, by the Russians uh, and, and the Ukrainians, how good they've been at trying, you know, that their two Navy commanders switched sides <laughs> in, in Crimea mm. and their intelligence services used to be riddled with Ru- Russian operatives. There still are a lot around. There's cyber attacks going on. I think the, the goal right now is to try to destroy uh, Ukraine as a state, 
to turn it into another uh, kleptocracy, get rid of the current government, uh, causes as much damage inside. Uh, notice the very clever thing that uh, Putin did to, uh, today, which was to announce the two breakaway provinces are now separate countries, mm -hmm. and therefore his troops are just peacekeepers. It's not an invasion of Ukraine. Now, no one's buying it, of course, uh, but it is. it kind of gives you an indication of the the little green men that the undermine the country, that destroy the country. Why? Because he knows that if it's 1914 and he sends the tanks rolling to Kiev, uh, that, that's a step too far. We, that will actually get uh, the rest of us out of our somnolence. Uh, you know, the Italians have already said, well, sanctions, yes, but, but not for energy, of course. Right. <laughs> uh, so as long as it's plausibly deniable, and, and I think the troops are there just to be, a, you know, don't try anything, uh, leave me alone to destroy this country. Uh, is is what he's after, um, because of course now he people say, oh, he wants a promise that Ukraine won't join NATO. He wants promises from us. The U.S. is real good at promises, like the one that Ukraine keeps its territorial integrity. So that that doesn't make any sense. Uh, I think his primary goal is internal. He wants to wake up tomorrow morning. <laughs> Here's a guy who can't retire because if he does, he won't wake up tomorrow morning. Uh, and and uh, you know he's got his own unstable situation to deal with, and, and then you know he's he's in a tough spot. Uh, these sanctions are going to really hurt his support within Russia. Anyway, so I, I I don't I still am I'm not an expert on this stuff. I'm just reading the newspapers. But but um, push just up until the brink, cause as much destruction in Ukraine as he can. Try to turn it back into a client state. I, I would say that's the goal. Not not tanks rolling to Kiev. And just and just as we transition, I know I know Bill, we've got a lot to cover today, but I, I'll, I'll just say that you know he's accomplishing a lot of what he wants, right? He's he's already kind of de facto occupied Belarus. He's got Ukraine under under his thumb. He's he's put in effect kind of a de facto de facto blockade on Ukraine. He's weakening Ukraine economically, but you know he's not getting everything he wanted. He really wanted disunity. And John, you're getting at this. He wanted disunity within Ukraine. Hey, he's done a lot to really yes. stoke Ukrainian nationalism. And he also wanted disunity in Europe. And of course, there's a fair bit of that as we're talking about. But really, you know, we, we've held together with our, our European allies on this. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm not, you know, I, I'm not neither optimistic nor pessimistic about the future because, you know, Putin is, is unpredictable, I think. Uh, but but I, I, I'm not disheartened by the by the response so no. far. I just want to, and thanks for pointing that out. I think we need to give the administration kudos for getting, you know, really getting the allies together on a much more united front than people thought was going to was going to be there. One final question on this front, then we'll, we'll switch over to opioids HR. Um, if you listen to Putin's speech or read Putin's speech, uh, two things stood out. Number one, uh, just his absolute paranoia about the West, uh, just claiming the West was you know, just encouraging, egging on Ukraine to, to do horrible things against Russia. Uh, but then secondly, his, his embrace of history and explaining how the Bolsheviks uh, created this uh, rogue state to begin with, and clearly his ambitions to recreate a Russian empire. But if you look at my map from 1914, getting back to 1914, uh, you'll find the Russian empire encompasses Poland. It encompasses the Baltic states. It covers Finland. If you want to go back to 1867, there is Alaska, Fort Ross in California. I'm not saying he's going to invade California. Maybe we'd let him have California. Who knows? But the point is, HR, we sit down with Putin. At some point, we're going to talk to Putin. How do we stave his ambitions, assuming that this is sort of like the 1930s and there's somebody who just wants to keep grabbing land? Well, you have to meet it with resistance, right? You have to deter by denial, which we've talked about you know, qu quite a bit. And you know, Putin, it's funny, both Putin and Xi Jinping are great manipulators of history. You know, it's consistent yeah. with you know, the, the great Orwell quotation that he who controls the past controls the future, and he who controls the present controls the past. And both of them were trying to, to, you know, to revise history. You know, she's trying to deny, you know, the cultural revolution, you know, and, and, uh, uh, you know, and, and, uh, and, you know, just the, the tragedy of, of, uh, of communist party rule in, in China. And then Putin is, is of course, nostalgic. You would say, I, I think, you know, back to the, to, to the czarist period more than anything else, right. To reestablish right. the, the, uh, the empire. So, I mean, one of the big correctives, you know, we're going to talk probably a little bit about this too when we get to, you know, to to uh, to, to race relations and and you know equality of opportunity in the United States. The it's important to remember the manipulation of history was one of the greatest tools that were used to justify Jim Crow, you know, and and separate but equal, right? And and you know the myth that you know the, the civil war was for states' rights instead of slavery, or that slavery was a benign rather than horrible institution. And so I, I really think this is where this is where demagogues go first, right? Those who want to 
to, to inflict abuses on, on people, on a society, they try to manipulate, they start with the manipulation of history and the abuse of history. I'm going to make one point on, on 1914 as well. I mean, and this is during the season where our nation breathed life into War Plan White, which was our domestic plan to fight Bolsheviks, you know, Negroes, you know, and people who sought to overthrow our country. And so, uh, and that was believed that Negroes uh, were, were going to be a part of that. Uh, juxtapose that with what you saw last year at the, at the Capitol. It was majority uh, folk who had felt they had been marginalized uh, during the Obama years. And so I think there's a lot to unpack. Uh, and history, we can see that it's cyclical, that it, uh, it repeats itself. Let's move on to why the general is here in the first place, and that is to talk about opioids and race in America. Uh, general Price, let me throw a few stats at you here. Uh, per the DEA from 2020 to January 2020 and January 2021, over death, overdose deaths in America uh, for fentanyl rose by 38%. Uh, our viewers might be uh, interested to know that drug overdoses in America now kill more than 100,000 Americans a year. That's more than vehicle crashes and gun deaths combined. Uh, over the same period I mentioned from January 20 to 21, uh, overdose deaths involving synthetic opioids, primarily uh, fentanyl rose by 55%. Why the focus on fentanyl? Uh, it's 100 times more potent than morphine, 50 times more potent than heroin. Uh, here in California, number of deaths from fentanyl overdoses has jumped by 2,100% over the last five years. Let me now give you a San Francisco story, General Price. Last summer, the police in San Francisco seized seven kilos of fentanyl in powder form, according to the city's police, quote, enough legal overdoses to wipe out San Francisco's population four times over. I did a little math on this. San Francisco's population is about 875,000 people. So you're talking about three and a half million people. If you boil that down, divide it by 15 and a half pounds of fentanyl, one pound of fentanyl uh, general price kills about a quarter of a million people. That makes it a weapon of mass destruction, an atomic bomb, if you will. What do we know about fentanyl? We know that it's beyond potent. It's transcontinental. It crosses class and race lines and its use is skyrocketing. How did America reach this situation? Well, you know, there's, there's a, there's a, that's a, that's some interesting statistics. And I tell you that, that uh, it would be a great question of HR as a former national security advisor, whether or not uh, drug overdoses might, might find themselves uh, as a, uh, as a, as a major crisis, as a security threat uh, to our nation. Um, the CDC has released data over the last uh 12 months that looks back from October of, of 19 to October of, of 20, which shows that uh, we've had 100,306 overdose deaths uh, in that 12 month period, 65% of which were due to, to opioids. That's, that's, 2000, that's 20, uh, 273 deaths uh, every day. Uh, also, I tell you that, that methamphetamine, LSD, crack, and heroin uh, remain a problem, though they're not the focus uh, right now for a nation. Opioids are. 95,000 people every year are dying from, from alcohol abuse. We're not talking about that. Likewise, uh, 480,000 people die from uh, tobacco abuse uh, uh, annually. We know that marijuana, cocaine, meth, heroin, and opioids, that uh, they're in middle schools, not just in high schools. And so our historical approach uh, has, been, has been interesting, most of which did not work. Uh, what we've learned over these years is that there's no panacea. There's no golden egg laid by the golden goose. There's no one thing uh, that we can do. We've tried to legislate our way out of it. It didn't work. We've tried to tax our way out of it. And we see that uh, with tobacco especially, and we'll see it if they ever federalize uh, legalization of marijuana. But taxing, taxing doesn't work either. It doesn't end the addiction. People will pay, people are paying almost $10 for a pack of cigarettes right now. We can't treat our way out of it. We don't have enough uh, facilities to do that. And then this is the piece that, that, that looms large right now is that we can't imprison our way out of this, ep out of this epidemic. Uh, there's not enough prisons. Uh, believe it or not, there are more prisons in America uh, by more than a thousand than there are educational facilities, colleges and universities. Uh, I think that tells you something about uh, our culture. Hey, hey, Barry, you know, it seems so daunting, right? And, and you know, the, the drug abuse problem is connected to other problems. You've mentioned right. 
uh, you know, it's, it's connected to crime, obviously, right. but it's also connected to what we see every day in all, all across the golden state here, homelessness. Yeah. And, and so could you talk a little bit about like, how does a community start? Like, how do you get them to be, to begin taking on what are really, it seems to be interconnected problems of criminality, homelessness, and, and, uh, and drug abuse. Yeah, and and the piece that that you're really talking about uh, usually when you talk about homelessness is a mental health problem, you know, and and that's one of the things is that you know uh, mental health has been something that our nation has uh, tended to avoid uh, that we haven't talked about. There's so much stigma that's uh, that's involved in it. One of the things that we're now doing uh, in our training with our coalitions is. Uh, teaching this concept known as ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, and how uh, those childhood experiences, though you might seem to, to have been resilient and have overcome some of those childhood experiences, traumas, childhood traumas, uh, they come back. They're, they're dormant, but they revisit you later in your life. And we've seen so many cases of that. And people will medicate a problem through uh, either drugs, and al drugs or alcohol you know, or both. And so one of the things that we've done, uh, and usually our, our uh, drug-free communities, which is a federally funded uh, program, it only pays $125,000 a year to those communities. Uh, and then they have to match that and they could be in kind. But we've seen that, that once this community does the data and they have uh, uh, established a coalition, with minutes for six months, then they can start a coalition and then we'll train them on how to deal uh, with their problems. One of the things, so our focus is, is um, illicit and illegal and illicit drugs, underage drinking and cessation of all uses of tobacco. You know, we know that you can overlay uh, our coalition model on any scourge within the community, be it suicide, be it uh, uh, parenting skills, be it fathering skills for uh, uh, one community is a, um, one of our communities out in Washington state uh, is a uh, drug, I mean, is a uh, prison latent community. And so most of their people have a lot of people in the community who just come out of uh, prison. They're teaching them uh, skills to help them to, to decrease recidivism you know, in those communities. And, and I tell you, the mental health uh, crisis, HR, uh, I think is kind of the, the larger umbrella that if we solve the mental health problem, we'll be, we'll be a hell of a lot, a long ways down the road in this. I want to give you all something that I think, because I don't think that the problem that besets us is, is hopeless. And there are a couple of things that I think we, we need to do uh, as a nation. I think that we need to establish a Kerner-like uh, commission. That was what, what the nation did in the 60s to look at, at uh, inner city violence and riots. And I think that the Office of Drug Control Policy for the U.S. Uh, should be the, must be both the convener and the, unify, and the unifying agency for U.S. efforts. But I think it's a problem that we can solve. I'd like to ask you two questions, and I'll, I'll, I won't do them both at the same time because I hate it when people ask me two questions. I can't remember them. Uh, <laughs> uh, the narrow one, I, I want to salute, first of all, what you're doing, because um, you brought up mostly community, and then we went to Washington, and sort of my two questions are community and then, and then the Washington one. Uh, but so much of America now, there's a problem, and everybody runs first to Washington, and we need some great new program to X, Y, and Z. And you're in the sort of the Tocqueville um, space where you say, no, our right. local community has to get its act together right. and say, we're not going to tolerate, uh, you know, a free drug zone in our public park. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I love that you brought it also together with um, parenting and, and uh, you know, other signs of community because mm -hmm. communities that fall apart, fall apart in lots of ways. Right. Uh, you did bring up, and I also, the, the, the um, interaction, not just mental health, but the interaction of mental health and, and drug abuse. Um, the drug abusers that, that I have known um, describe it as self-medication for mental health problems. That's a right. lot of what it is. Now, but on policy, we do, I think of, say, San Francisco, <laughs> which is an epicenter of drug problems. Despite the fact that they spend $330,000 per homeless person per year, it is very hard to get drug treatment uh, or mental health treatment. And, um, you know, somebody who is 
who is abusing public spaces and supporting themselves by crime, we are unwilling to say, no, you've got to come take the drug treatment and you are not allowed to use this public space. In fact, the community of San Francisco and, and increasingly Palo Alto is very tolerant. They don't, they don't say um, homeless drug addicts engaged in crime. They say our, our unhoused neighbor, we must tolerate their, their lifestyle choice. Hmm. Wait a second here. So I, I, um, I want to salute it, but there are also, even at the community level, there are some things we could be doing much. It's not a lack of money. We're just spending the money in, in atrociously wrong ways. So, so Then I'll get to the Washington so, question. So there, there is a problem, uh, John, with, with money. Uh, because one of the things, and it's a Washington term, which is same year money. So when they pass the money, you have to spend the money within that year. And if you look at the cycle in Washington, you know, we've been under continuing resolution most years. And then that leaves a very truncated window in which people can spend the money. That doesn't allow you to do brick and mortar kinds of things like to build buildings and infrastructure. You or, know, or build and so, community, right? Build organizations yeah, no, no, that need a budget yeah. for more than one year. Right, right. Now, one of the things with, with our community-based approach is that uh, we don't solve any of their problems. We teach them how to solve their own problems. And that's why I think our model uh, works is because we're not, we're not saying, we're not legislating from DC how to solve your problems. And I tell you that we're uh, in every community in the United States and we're in uh, well, every county in the United States and we're in 30 countries across the world uh, uh, and, and it has the same res resonance. It works just as effectively, you know, in, in those 30 foreign countries as it works here in the United States because we're giving them the tools uh, to solve their own problems. If I can, then I'll, then I'll give HR a turn. <laughs> I wanna ask you a, a, a difficult question. It, it's, it's the libertarian question. You've probably okay. heard it, so you have a good answer. Um, we, we've lumped together a lot of problems. Uh, one problem is a generation of kids, primarily black kids in jail for a small yeah. time, yeah. either possession or dealing kids. And the, there's not that many jobs available and they chose the job of drug dealer and then they're in jail for 20, 30 years and, right. and families are destroyed and so forth. There's another problem, which is the nexus of crime and homelessness. Uh, people living on the streets to support drug addicts, combination of mental illness, supporting themselves, the drug addict addiction supported with crime, uh, which is ruining cities. There's the problem of overdoses that we started with. Uh, there is the problem of uh, countries. Uh, a lot of Central America is now basically narco-kleptocratic terrorist states. Mm -hmm. uh, Afghanistan supports mm -hmm. itself on, on opium policies. And there's the problem of, of wasted lives, um, mm -hmm. people who just take drugs and, and are you know, waste their lives. Now, all but one of those would disappear if drugs were legal and made by drug companies. Fentanyl is incredibly cheap. And right. if you could get it as a pill that said, this is exactly 10 milligrams of fentanyl, no more than no less, pure thing. We would, overdoses would be done because you know exactly what your dose is. Crime would go away because it'd be incredibly cheap. We would undercut the mafia, third world countries, all sorts of uh, problems all over there. There would no longer be a generation, even the question of a generation of drug dealers, the neighborhoods that are taken over uh, by drug gangs, uh, unpoliced areas of the US. There would be more wasted lives. Um, uh, now, is that not worth it? And, and here you've kind of lumped in addictive things like fentanyl and non-addictive things like pot. But uh, that, that does, that is my first reaction. And now, of course, it's a difficult one for our country to go to. But I think it's a fact that all of those things would disappear except for the way in, in the quest of sort of paternalistic, we're not going to let you waste lives. Right. Wow, have we done right. a lot of destruction. Right. Should if right. I give up? If I could, if I could no. jump in. Can I jump in here for a second? So John is on some very familiar turf for Hoover economists. 
Uh, there's, of course, the late great Milton Friedman, who mm-hmm. said in 1991, quote, I'm in favor of legalizing drugs. Mm-hmm. According to my values, if people want to kill themselves, they have every right to do so. Most of the harm that comes from drugs is because they're illegal. Mm-hmm. But here's George Schultz uh, writing in Hoover's Defining Ideas of August 2013, quote, drug abuse should be treated as a health problem. We should carefully study the experiences of other countries with decriminalization as distinct from simple legalization. What the late Secretary Schultz was getting at was if you remove the criminal element by making it possible for addicts to buy drugs at a regulated price that approximates their cost, you get rid of the supply by getting rid of the profitable demand. Health, I think a community health problem, which is right. I'm yeah. still very right. influenced by what you've been saying about. Yeah. But, but right. okay, but, but John, but John, but John, you're asking: Is there a market? Is there kind of a market solution to this? Yeah. Well, well John, I tell you that that uh, the the facts, the data doesn't bear that out. You know, so what you just described is the the global view, the European view of harm reduction. You know, that is, it's my temple, it's my body. I have a right to do whatever I feel I should do to my body. And oh, by the way, if I get in trouble and I ask for help, I should have the government uh, then to, to be there. You look at our, at our history, uh, that hasn't borne out uh, in the United States. You know, there's a belief that if you legalize uh, cannabis. And you said that cannabis is not addictive. That's not what the science says. Science says even that there's no, that there's no true um, medicinal purpose uh, for, uh, from cannabis. Uh, There is some properties uh, in cannabinoids that, that have uh, uh, some properties, like for example, we know that it provides relief from glaucoma and from cancer patients. It provides them some relief from, from nausea, from, from, uh, from chemotherapy, but but save that, uh, that that's really it. Uh, we like know it. that, and there's a big question of is cannabis a gateway drug? We we see people who smoke cannabis uh, usually will will do an increase uh, to sustain the high because your body gets gets accustomed to it. Uh, we know as as a nation, uh, and you look at Denver, which was the first uh, state to to uh, pass recreational use and from the high intensity drug trafficking area in, in Denver, the Haida in Denver, uh, I mean, in, in uh, the state of Colorado, we know that that uh, about 27% of the auto fatalities, uh, the autopsy showed that there was cannabis in the system of the person. Were they driving impaired? We know that it takes about 30 days uh, for your body to deabsorb uh, because uh, it's, it, it's in your fatty tissues. So it takes about 30 days before you're clean of cannabis. And so we don't know from that data whether they uh, smoked uh, marijuana the day before or 29 days before. Uh, we believe that, that for cannabis especially, that it should be an FDA issue and not a ballot issue. It's a drug. You know, it's a drug that we're learning a lot about, uh, and we know that that uh, cannabis is telling the same uh, wives' tales that we heard with with legalizing gambling. Oh, we're going to put I lots of money into not, the schools. I'm not saying drug, drugs are great, uh, just the yeah, cost yeah. of the war. As we found with prohibition, alcohol is not right. great. No, it's not. I, and, I and again, we're still losing 95,000 people a year. But uh, the cost, alcohol. but prohibition and what it did, organized crime, uh, bad booze, people die. It yeah. was not worth it socially. Right. So are we, right. it's not great. And I, right. I'm not saying it's a great thing, uh, but uh, is the a lot of the stuff that we're seeing yeah. are are very high costs of the war on drugs. Yeah. And maybe we yeah. should, anyway. And here, here, here's another, here's another fact what I want to give you before you, before I let you off the hook is- uh, Please. 11% uh, of the population uh, has a problem. That means that 89% don't. And so uh, I don't believe it, it even requires, you know, measures like you may have, like you, like you alluded to, to solve a problem because it's, it's 11% of a population that, that might have a problem. Hey, sure. <laughs> Yeah, so I was going to, you know, what I was going to try to segue in, into is is really that, you know, the we, there's been a, obviously a lot of focus this past year on the various traumas we've we've come through, right? The, yeah, the pandemic, yeah. the recession mm-hmm. associated with the pandemic. And, mm-hmm. and and then, you know, I was thinking about you a lot, uh, Barry, because of your your book, you know, your yeah. book on, on, on the history of federal intervention uh, to, to quell civil unrest and, mm-hmm. and then the research that you did. 
yeah. uh, for your dissertation, during which you went to some of the most, you know, uh, underprivileged urban areas in the country. You you did a lot of interviews, mainly with police, with with uh, police officers and police leaders as part of that that, that dissertation and research. And you know, so much of the narrative over this past year is re- has really been around you know the you know the 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 constellation of issues that, with the buzzword you know diversity, equity, and inclusion, right. Right. which which we at the Hoover Institution tend to think of in terms of equality of opportunity, right? Yeah. And mm-hmm. and a lot of the maladies we're discussing here, you know, with drugs and and crime and homelessness, those affect are a blight on these urban areas and, right. and make it even more difficult for those who were born into that zip code, right? To right to access the great promise of America. And mm-hmm. I know you've been an advocate, uh, you know, within our military in terms of uh, the military being an area of opportunity uh, for, for young people and and to reaching young uh, people who are willing to serve in, in those communities. You know, you're the, the head personnel officer, you know, for, you know, for, uh, for our army. And you led a lot of these issues mm-hmm. on a lot of these issues mm-hmm. uh, from, from the military's perspective. And now you're, you know, you're serving again in a new way uh, right. in, in, in the organization you lead today. Can you, what, what are your thoughts about it? Like, what, how do you diagnose the problem of inequality of opportunity and what do we do about it? Yeah, so that's, that's a lot, uh, HR, to unpack. And, and I'll try to do it within the time that I have left. That's a, that's a joke, John. That's just to spook John a little bit. Hey, so, so, um, so, so HR, I, I tell you, I did travel to uh, every city that rioted after the death of Martin Luther King, 72 cities, uh, to every city that, that rioted uh, after the Rodney King trial verdict. And that was 13 cities in 11 states. And, and I tell you that, that you see a lot of the same things. Um, I remember driving in St. Louis uh, and I came up with this term, uh, concrete bastion of hopelessness, you know, because that's what I saw. I saw people uh, playing cards or playing dominoes in the middle of the street, you know, in the middle of the day, you know, with the oasis, which is the skyline. You know, you can see it, you know, uh, but it's almost like these folk didn't have access to it. Uh, there's a city in uh, Miami, a, a little section of Miami called Coconut Grove. I don't know if if, if any of you have uh, been to Coconut Grove, but it is it is opulence to the third power. I mean, it is just uh, swank shops, Gucci shops, you know, uh, uh, specialty shops, uh, high-end hotels, high-end cars, everything about uh, Coconut Grove says opulence. Uh, But there's an alley. I was there for a funeral of my command sergeant major's mother. And she lived, on the other side of an alleyway with a fence. And the fence was probably a couple of stories high. Uh, I mean, the gate was, but it was a fence that was a regular size. It was like a door. And when things uh, would get bad in Miami, uh, and Miami had a lot of race riots in the, in the 80s, they would lock uh, the fence, uh, which meant you had uh, access to that opulence uh, uh, when things were going well, but they cut you off when things were bad. And I think that that gateway is really um, uh, epitomizes many of our uh, inner cities that, that uh, you know, we talk about, uh, uh, and I, I, I'd like to talk a little bit about critical race theory because there's a lot of things that it is, and there are a lot of things that it's not. And then there's been a lot of focus in recent days that talked about uh, what it is. And critical race theory is written by by Professor Derek Bell, uh, Harvard-educated, Harvard professor. Uh, It was intended to be a framework uh, that can be used to to theorize, examine, and challenge the ways ways that race and racism implicitly or explicitly impact social structures practices and discourses. In other words, CRT scholars in the 70s and 80s argued that the liberal notion of value neutral US laws had a significant political role 
and maintaining a racially unjust social order, where formerly colorblind laws continue to have racially discriminatory outcomes. Uh, in short, it's a legal analytic uh, theory founded in Tolton Law Schools, which examines how policy and legislation have promoted and continues uh, systemic racism. Like, and I'll give you some examples, like uh, this notion of, of dri driving while black. You've all heard it. Uh, I've actually experienced it. Like racial profiling uh, by, by uh, police officers, like stop and frisk policies that they used to have in New York that the mayor is, is bringing back. And these policies are applied unevenly and hence they violate uh, people's Fourth Amendment rights. Uh, another example like redlining uh, or predatory lending uh, and undervalued appraisals of African-American owned dwellings, uh, which fail to comport with the Fair Housing Act of, of 1966 like present day efforts to upend, upend uh, the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And you're seeing it all around us uh, to make, and it's, it's, it's seen as, as an effort to make uh, majority, minority voting uh, more difficult, like qualified immunity, you know, which was first introduced uh, uh, in, in 67 in a case that, that litigated uh, during the height of the civil rights movement. You know, it stated, it stated to have been originally introduced with the rationale of protecting law enforcement officials from frivolous lawsuits and financial liability, you know, in cases where they acted in good faith uh, in unclear legal situations. Now, let me give you some, some data points on, on this qualified immunity and why it's so important and why it's a part of this uh, of CRT. So uh, would you believe if I told you that from 2013 uh, through current day 2028, 2022, that police have killed 9,988 Americans. Uh, that's the police have killed more Americans than American treasure was lost in both uh, in GWAT, in both campaigns in GWAT, that is in Afghanistan and in Iraq, 44% uh, uh, of them have been, have been Caucasian, you know, 25% uh, have been African-American. Now you juxtapose that with that African-Americans constitute about 11%, you know, of the, of the population, 18% have been Hispanic, 10% uh, unknown races, and then 1% for Asian uh, and, and uh, Native Americans. Uh, my read is that CRT asks the nation to live up to the ideals of the Constitution. That is liberty, justice, common defense, general welfare, domestic tranquility. Uh, tranquility. Uh, it's aspirational uh, uh, for all people. Uh, in the United States, the Constitution is. And so I think that that uh, CRT has been conflated with something that it's not, uh, uh, you know. that it's it, it was it was designed to be a uh, a, um, a a mechanism for debate, you know, in law schools. But it's it's now come mainstream and it's not. It's a theoretical model. It's based on a supposition. Yeah, you know, you know what I think is, I think what we ought to do, Barry, is like just not even use the term critical race. Theory, I agree, but but talk about arguments within it, right? As you you know, as you note, it was this theoretical construct. It was it's really grew out of you know a whole range of critical theories, postmodernist, you right. know, uh, postcolonial theory, and so forth. It's a, it's deconstructionist, and 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 I think aspects of it include, mm -hmm. right? I would say, include. That because we, we are as a society are structurally and institutionally predisposed toward racism, the only way that we can tr transcend it is to tear the whole tear everything down. Right. That's right. that's one aspect of some people who advance the theory. Right. The other the other aspect of it is that you should judge one another in our mm -hmm. society, your fellow Americans, by their identity category or some sort of strata of mm -hmm. victimhood and oppressor. This is that mm -hmm. shaming aspect you mentioned. Right. 
Right. And I think this is destructive mm-hmm. to the cohesion of our society. Right. And it robs us of agency, right? Because if you believe, if you believe that, Barry, if you believe it, right, whether you're black or white or Hispanic or whatever, what you then say is, okay, I have no agency. You're left with a toxic combination, you know, of anger and resignation. Mm-hmm. And you know, Barry, I worry about this infecting in the military, man. I, I mean, you, you know, you, you know, uh, you and I came up in a time, and we we talked about this. I mean, we mm-hmm. talked about this after grad school. Remember, yeah, we where when mm-hmm. we, you know, when when I went to UNC and you went to Texas A and M, you know, I I went to UNC and I looked at the basketball courts and I looked at the flag football going on. I'm like, mm-hmm. why are, why are, why are all the, why are the black students over there and the white students? Yeah. Are, we we were in the military, right? Where that wasn't the case, right? Right. And and I think in many ways it, it was a bit generational for us as well. I think that we came up in the post civil rights period, you know. And I don't know what what's your assessment, uh, Barry? Are you worried about you know the various aspects of CRT? And you know, of course, this is overdone. And you you are the expert yes. on Mount Martin Luther King. Sure. But what you typically hear is, hey, this isn't what Dr. King said, right? right. What Dr. King said, you know, I, I want my I want my you know my children to grow up in a world where people are judged by the content of their character, right? Not their not their not their skin color. So, I mean, I, I'm worried about it, Barry, because I think what happens is the irrational aspects of CRT create equal and opposite irrational reactions, you know, uh, among whatever you want to call various uh, you know, forms of prejudice and bigotry. So what, what are, are you worried? Are you worried about it? Yeah. So so I, I tell you that that uh, CRT is not a term that that most black people are even aware of. Never been exposed to it. I mean, like, it's, it's, it's like Latin. It's like Latinx. Exactly. Latinx. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. And so it's not. It's not historical. You know, it's never. It's not in the lexicon of history. It's not in the dialectic model that looks at African American history. You know, uh, uh, I heard of it. I mean, and I'm a. I'm a PhD in history. I write books. I heard it for the first time. Uh, two years ago, you know, uh, and I'm like, it's bull. You know, I mean, it's not, and and who's giving it agency or who's who's uh, building the fire under it? It's it's one of the many things that came out during the last administration. You know, uh, uh, after uh, Voigt uh, became the head of OMB, where they started attacking it you know, and looking at contracts, you know, uh, and conflating it with with ethnic observances, uh, with DEI. I will tell you that I I think uh, HR, there was a, um, there is a, the pendulum overswung uh, as a result of the George Floyd uh, 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 phenomenon. I think that George Floyd was America's Arab Spring. You know, it had all the trappings uh, of it. It was a social movement, you know, where uh, a Black Lives Matters, uh, you know, got agency. Uh, uh, but what's their focus? I can't tell you, you know, what's their, yeah, I believe Black Lives Matter. I believe all lives matter, you know, but but the question is, what where did CRT come from and who's who's talking about it? You, you rarely see any black folk talking about it. You don't see it on any black media shows. I hear more talking about it uh, in the episodes of Goodfellas than I heard <laughs> than I've heard about it uh, ever. You know, and so so I I think it's it's much to do about nothing. Uh, if you if you ask me, it's not uh, historical in that it's not a period of paternalism, which is well-defined in Black history from uh, 19, 1865 to 1920. It's not, you know, the period of transition, which is the period of the Harlem Renaissance where Blacks started telling their own story. You know, it's not the period of maturation, you know, which is the 50s and 60s where America, you know, breathed life into uh, the Pledge of Allegiance, where we started, we put in God we trust on our currency. And we started telling a story of a a United States, of one, uh, uh, a, a nation indivisible with liberty and justice for all. I've yet to see, and I've heard about, 
CRT. I mean, and they're conflating the, the renaming of uh, military installations if they do that. Uh, Atai Sejali's research, uh, the, uh, the taking down of statues with critical race theory. It's not. It's not that. It's it's just it's it's local understanding, and I think uh, a, a desire to say this in this locale offends me as this type of a person. But that's not critical race theory. Can I, can I just can I just follow quickly, and then John, I'm sorry to to, to monopolize here, but I do think Barry, it's tied though to yeah, post-colonial theory, mm-hmm. right? And it's tied to other critical theories that essentially teach our young people, especially in universities. And I think mm-hmm. now this is this is trickling down. This is the Howard Zinn right. view, right, right, of American mm-hmm. history into right. secondary schools. Right. And Barry, I would, in general, I would call this the curriculum of self-loathing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that is associated, <laughs> you know, it's associated with the new left interpretation of history. Yeah. But now it's associated with these other theories as well. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and of course, you know, we don't want a contrived, happy view of our history. Right. We want to go no, back to that. Yeah. But, you yeah. know, I mean, with, with something like Project 1619, when it says, okay, right. and you know, I mean, you're an American historian <laughs> like I am, man, you know, that our country was not founded on uh, to preserve slavery. No. You know, I, I think. You know that it was founded on principles that ultimately made that that horrible institution untenable, right? And mm-hmm. and to teach the former, mm-hmm. I think shakes our confidence in who we are as a people. Yeah. You know, and and makes us less able to to, to improve. You know, uh, uh, you know, and and uh, to build a better future for for the next generations. Mm-hmm. If I if I could put, let me try to summarize a little bit because I thought Barry, you started with a beautiful job of. Uh, of, of reading critical race theory and finding in it um, uh, or, or a trenchant critique of where we are in, in America in race today. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I couldn't, I, I'm not, that was beautiful. But of course, you also, uh, um, these labels are dangerous. <laughs> yeah. And I think what we're learning is the labels are highly politicized, used yeah, to demonize are. and dogmatize. Right. And they're, um, as, as now um, HR was pointing out, mm-hmm there's a critical and a theory in critical race theory and critical mm-hmm. theory is a bunch of ideas that mm-hmm. thinks capitalism is inherently evil. Um, colo- we are all colonialism. We, you know, uh, everything we got, we got by, by destroying, there was a lot of destruction in colonialism, but oh. it, it wasn't the only sin in the world mm-hmm. that wants to create a ref- ethnic and racial political organization, which you guys have been around the world and you can see just how well that's worked out in places yeah. like Yugoslavia, Iraq, mm-hmm. Iran, everywhere else been, it's been tried. Yeah. It's, been about, it's about as successful as communism and socialism everywhere mm-hmm. those have been tried too. Uh, so I think that the critical theory parts of that are, are worth it admitting. Um, you know, when, when you said <laughs> all, all lives matter, um, that's actually in, in, in DEI statement and uh, rubrics, that will immediately get you fired because you're not allowed to say, say that. Well, I don't. Good thing I don't you do know, that. Huh? I, I would. I would. Uh, but what, for example, when you said qualified immunity, that's not just a CRT uh, thing. That right. that lots of people, including right. my favorite libertarians, mm-hmm. think we have a way too militarized police, and that qualified immunity yeah. is 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 there's um, there's the wrong kind of policing in lots mm-hmm. of places. And I would, you know. There's systemic racism all over the place. Let's start sure. with the public schools. Yeah. Uh, one of the important cleavages in America is mm-hmm. you ask minorities, what do they want? They want better schools. They yeah. want school choice. They don't want right. what the public school teachers union is doing to their kids. Right. And, um, you know, in, in a lot of lefty politics, you're not allowed to say, oh, that's one of the most systemically racist institutions in America. Mm-hmm. So anyway, mm-hmm. that, I, I just I think I've put together what what everybody yeah. said. Yeah, it's great. It's great summary. Yeah, there there is some uh, concern, John, that I tell you that that uh, that we are uh, we have uh, we're back. America has reversed course and may be back where it was pre uh, Brown v. v Board of Education. That our schools are uh, uh, look are homogeneous. You know uh, that it looks like one. I know the school. Uh, what's the school in San Francisco? But they're not just segregated; they're bad. They're yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and, yeah. And that's the, the most important. You know, whether segregated or not, that that young, especially yeah. Black Americans, just get mm-hmm. such awful educations 
yeah. at the hands of the teachers union. And and this is what's the school, the Asian program. school that's that's in uh, Lowell, that's I mostly Phil Lowell. Lowell High so school. yeah, Lowell High School. So the number one school in our nation is is here in in Virginia, Thomas Jefferson. Yes, you know, yeah. and and it looks like Lowell, and so people are complaining. I mean, it's it's merit based. You have why to can't test we teach? Why it. can't black kids have access to? Then it's not just one high oh, school. Again, every no, high school be good. It's, it's not the black kids. It's the white kids who the white parents who are yep. complaining that it's it's too Asian. You know uh, that they're taking all the opportunities. And so the the question is, uh, if something is is merit based mm-hmm. and merit borns out, uh, this is what the class picture looks like. Uh, should that not be acceptable? But what, I think there's a bigger question. Why is there only one good school? Why don't we have more? Oh, it's, it's plenty. Of, it's plenty. Of, it's plenty of good schools. But why it's, can't there it's, be great? It's a great school. Great schools. Yeah. Yeah. There are guys, that, guys, are? guys. These are very big questions, and the producer is really anxiously trying to get us to wrap up the show. So I'm sorry, we're going to have to cut it off here. Uh, General Price, this is a great conversation, and we could have gone on all day about this. Uh, come back and talk to us again. You know, hey, Bill, I, can I, I can I can I leave you with a thought? Yeah. Sure, go ahead. Uh, and 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 I think this is something that that it it resonates uh, and it it lives within me, uh, and it's words uh, from the Prophet Muhammad, um, who stated that four things supports the world: the learning of the wise. That's what we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. Uh, the justice of the great, you know, the prayers of the good, and the valor of the brave. And I think we must be more learned. A more just, you know, uh, more prayerful, and and more brave, uh, if we're going to see solutions for our nation. Okay, very well put, General Price. Really a pleasure to have you today. Pleasure is mine. So that's it for this episode of Goodfellows. Uh, a viewing note: or we will not be doing a show next week. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. We're giving John and HR some time off for good behavior as well. Hopefully, we'll have Neil back as well. So look for us sometime around March the sixteenth or so. Half of my Hoover colleagues, H.R. McMaster and John Cochran, our guest today, General Barry Price. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for watching. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in listening to more content featuring H.R. McMaster, subscribe to Battlegrounds, also available at hoover.org slash battlegrounds.